be prepared to be inspired, heartbroken, to laugh, and be motivated to action with stories, voices, and perspectives that rarely hit mainstream media. Hi, my name is Cheryl, host of the Global Citizenship and Equity podcast, where I feature leaders, practitioners, community leaders who are taking us forward in the 21st century. This podcast elevates the perspectives that shake up the status quo and allow us to feel into what it means to be human in a vulnerable society and on a very angry planet. When I first discovered Dr. Bandy X. Lee's work, I was intrigued. I was moved to see a forensic psychiatrist making such bold moves to speak up against the dangers of Donald Trump. She is a violence expert, an editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. She predicted the violence that would be incited by the former president and also the violence that Asian Americans would experience through the pandemic. She went on a four-year journey to warn the public. This fight was at the expense of coming up against the American Psychiatric Association and more, recently losing her position at Yale. She has become a significant part of Asian American leadership history, but her story is rarely told. This interview took place a week after Capitol Hill was attacked on January 6th earlier this year. Well, let's let's jump a little bit into the last four years of your journey. I think many of us have followed you and and observed your leadership. You know, in a few words, maybe, can you share with us what your journey has been like the last four years? Yes, I didn't quite expect it to last four years, but it ended up that way. So previously, I was a violence expert, strictly a clinician and an academic. I was consulting with a number of governments in the United States and around the world on violence prevention, but that was policy oriented, nothing to have, nothing having to do with politics per se. And then, and then this presidency happened where the morning after Donald Trump's election, I was contacted, I was flooded with phone calls, emails and messages because I was a violence expert and people were afraid of the violence that was was to come. Mainly hate crimes, I believe, at the time, but I often connect various different forms of violence. So some people were afraid of what would happen to the environment and to nuclear violence and so forth. And I thought to myself that if I had spent uh, almost 20 years at that point, studying, predicting, and preventing violence, would I turn away at this point? I could not. So that's how I jumped in. Wow. You know, I think you've shared in other interviews that you work in a forensic setting with people who have committed violent crimes and are white. And I wanted to see if you could share a little bit more about what it was like doing this work and the way that you observed Donald Trump and, and some, you know, what were some of the, the signs or similarities for you when you started to 
your advocacy. Yes. Well, it was not difficult for me to identify Donald Trump as a violent individual, an unstable and psychologically dangerous individual. So because of my area of specialty in treating violent offenders in mostly jail and prison settings, I became interested in this work because I grew up in New York City when it was quite violent and I was experienced with the inner city violence. So I wanted to study it from a psychological, psychiatric standpoint. So I happened to be catching the beings of the wave, I suppose, of the transformation of the study of violence from a criminal And so once I started studying it, it was quite remarkable how preventable it is, understandable it is, and we can intervene at various points and transform individuals as well as groups. So I had been doing my clinical work in mostly maximum security prisons. I actually studied prisons around the country. So while my appointment was at Yale I and I taught at Yale Law School, I took the opportunity whenever I was off to travel and surveil maximum security around, uh, prisons around the country. And so these included prisons in the South, as well as in California. There were, there were some big prisons there. Where I encountered a great deal of white supremacy groups, neo-Nazis and gang members. So this type of ideology, while not so prevalent in the mainstream culture, was actually quite prevalent in wow. the population treated. Wow. What were some of the things you saw in Donald Trump that sort of, you know, your alarm bells, you know, rang right away. What were some of the things you saw or heard? Yes. So during the campaign, for various reasons, I wasn't following it very much. I knew of Donald Trump from growing up in New York City. I knew him as sort of a shady businessman, uh, tabloid personality, but I didn't quite think of him as dangerous until I saw a few moments of him interacting with his crowds at a rally on television at one point. And he just reminded me of a, a violent gang leader. And so it didn't even take a minute for me to recognize that he was very much the personality structure that I have seen about a thousand times. I often say I've treated patients with a very similar psychological structure at least a thousand times. And so, so he's a very familiar personality to me. And you might say that everything I uh, was worried about him turned out to be throughout his presidency, almost to the mark in terms of timeline and degree of aggressiveness and, and attempts to most recently stay in power. So what are some of the traits, verbal obsessiveness, his boasting about sexual assaults, his inciting violence at his rallies, his attraction to violence and glorifying violence, as well as his attraction to, to powerful weapons. And once he was president, he was taunting allied and enemy nations alike, even nuclear powers. And so he was showing all the signs of a dangerous personality. You know, I haven't seen this population in my practice, so if I could consult you a little more and for, for people to hear and understand a little more. It seems like when he is threatened in any way, especially when we saw that he, he might be losing, you know, the campaign and everything, the kind of 
fabricated realities he was putting out and the, the sort of almost delusional kind of statements that he was making that was so far out of reality. Can you explain what might have been happening in terms of his personality and, and you know, his psychological state? Yes. Even if we're not treating specifically violent individuals, you may have come across personality disorders such as uh, narcissistic personality or uh, even antisocial personality, occasionally borderline personality. These personality dispositions make reality difficult to accept. And so you may see them kind of waver at, at the point of the borderline between being grounded in reality and having such extreme distortions that you wonder if they are becoming unmoored. And they tend to undergo psychotic spirals where when there's a lot of pressure so what I was observing was a very fragile personality, a, fra a person with a fragile sense of self who had extreme difficulty accepting criticism or challenges to his perspectives. And he was also given a position of power that he could not handle. So these are combinations where he was bound to worsen because his delusions of grandeur, his sense of uh, omnipotence and impunity would balloon in conjunction with his increasing inability to accept reality. So under extreme stress uh, such as that, he was bound to unravel and that is what we're, we're seeing. I, I don't see his, well what I commonly see is that the personalities deteriorate with the acquisition of the power that they had been seeking. They're, they usually do not have the capacity to hold that power and they're bound to abuse it and exploit it and bring upon a lot of destruction and damage, but they seek after it as a consequence of their pathology. And that combination is actually extremely difficult on the individual because now the expectations rise and, and become far distant from their own reality of inadequacy and feeling of worthlessness. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe what's baffling for many people and, and people are still struggling to make sense of what's happened in the last four years is the massive number of people that believe the these delusional things that he's been putting out and 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 you know of course being a, a systemic therapist i've seen things like shared psychosis in family systems but i i shudder to think that this has happened on such a massive and large scale so i wonder if you could share a little bit more about you know your insight or what, what you your take on what's happened for so many people to you know join in this delusion Yes, that's right. I'm glad you brought up shared psychosis because it's often overlooked among therapists who are just purely individual based, especially psychiatrists. But we see it very often in public sector settings with schizophrenia patients who go untreated for lengthy periods of time. What you see is that the healthy members of the family take on even the most bizarre delusions over time and rather than the other way around, it's not the health people who help the sick person get better, but left alone, exposed to this mental disease, the healthy individuals eventually succumb. And same in gangs. I've seen it actually quite wide, 
widespread because I've worked with gangs and prison dormitory settings where there's usually ringleader and and then when the leader has severe mental symptoms, unlike strategic lies or other rational lies, the, the symptomatic pathological lying or delusions actually spread much more rapidly and become widespread. And the secondary persons who take on the influential person symptoms look exactly like they have the same disorder as the primary person. So it's a very, it's a very impressive phenomenon when you see it in a group. But of course, we none of us have seen it nationwide. Yeah, uh, it's happening with the same dynamics, though. You can see how symptoms are transmitted along emotional bonds. Those who are bonded to him take on his beliefs and his delusions in ways that no rational persuasion could do. And that's really the frightening part, because that's where he can easily whip up uh, fervent, irrational support uh, where people just double down and resist any kind of challenges to their beliefs. And of course, their beliefs being so extreme and detached from reality, they also don't respond well to challenges and become violence prone and defensive. When we think about Nazi Germany and Hitler as a leader, would you say that this is a similar relational dynamic that has taken place this last four years? Yes, of course, there are many uh, variations of authoritarian leaders, and we can't say that Donald Trump is identical to Adolf Hitler, but they share a lot of characteristics. And in fact, the fact that they diverge from normalcy, in other words, wide range of human variation in the healthy realm, but once you uh, diverge from it into the pathological realm, which is important to identify because it means that it becomes dysfunctional, causes destruction and damage and even death, unlike healthy choices, regardless of ideology, which are always life-affirming. So they're similar in the sense that pathology is very identifiable. It becomes very rigid and stereotypical. So as health providers, we can identify it pretty readily. And for me, the first sign of this being becoming an authoritarian situation was the American Psychiatric Association coming out and modifying what is called the Goldwater Rule, which used to be a reasonable rule. I mean, no other mental health association has it. It doesn't really even have to be there. But you can't, basically can't diagnose without having all the medical records and kinds of information. They don't usually require an interview anymore. It used to be the case before 1980. But now we diagnose based on external observations. So, so not diagnosing without detailed information is reasonable. But the APA came out and said two months into this administration that the Goldwater Rule, uh, first of all, they dug up this obscure rule that is really a guideline, not a rule. If anything, science and evolution of practice made it almost irrelevant, but they pulled this out and turned it into a gag order, meaning that you cannot make any comment as a professional, as any mental health professional, without having examined the person and gotten consent to talk about them. So you can imagine for the most dangerous individuals who would never submit to an exam, 
whom you most need to talk about, you're gagged against. And, and dangerousness or unfitness to do a job are also mental health evaluations that do not require a all medical records, unlike a diagnosis. You're not treating them as a patient. You're actually fulfilling your public health duties when you warn against a dangerous public figure who is posing a public health risk. But they specifically said there are no exceptions, not even in a national emergency. That's That was the alarming act that propelled me to speak up. And everything that we expected we knew from the very start that if experts were silenced, then all manner of atrocities could occur. So I, I attribute the removal of access to expertise and intellectuals and professionals, just journalists, was the path to allowing a destructive government to continue. Yeah, I, I think the APA released an apology to Black Indigenous people of color for a history of um, structural racism. And I think you talk about structural violence and, and you know, gatekeeping of certain power structures and, and white supremacy. Do you think that white supremacy as a system and, and as a structure is what kind of silenced you to kind of inform the public about what was happening? No doubt because the modification of the Goldwater Rule had everything to do with placing priority to power over public health and safety. So the mere etiquette of not talking about a non-patient public figure superseded all public health obligations and duty to protect the public and warn the public in the case of danger. I have written about how I eventually, after four years, finally realized that white supremacy and maintaining the prevailing order was the reason for the Goldwater Rule. All this time I tried to make ethical sense of it, practical sense of it. It didn't make sense because it's not uh, conform to science or ethics or any kind of rational reasoning. Mm -hmm. But it does conform to the pattern of submitting to power. And the statement that the APA released, I also wonder, it's the association never issued an apology before, but for several months now, I've been pounding them to issue an apology to the public for misleading them about the Goldwater Rule, because they, in fact, the public was the party that was deprived of the best available information, the knowledge that experts bring to a situation that would allow them to have an educated, informed view of what was happening. But they eliminated that. They didn't just advise their psychiatrist members, which are only the only persons they have jurisdiction over, they don't have any right to discipline non-members because Goldwater Rule isn't admissible uh, under any law. It goes against the First Amendment, uh, so it's not on any licensing board or anything. And only 6% of practicing mental health professionals belong to the APA. But what they did, did instead was go on public campaigns and talk to media organizations and have them stop having mental health experts on for the mental health issue that was really a national emergency. Congress initially was trying to get wisdom from you. 
and suddenly it stopped from my understanding. Did this have anything to do with how, how it stopped? Yes, the APA had everything to do with how it stopped. I don't know if they talked directly to Congress members, but in fact, Congress members were outraged at the APA's campaigns. They were actually going to issue a statement stating that they wanted to hear from us. There was a great deal of media coverage when I told the, the press that we were meeting with Congress members. Once they told us that our, their ability to act politically depended on our educating the public. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on medical matters. So they were depending on us. And that is when we came out in full force into the media, which I think alarmed the APA right then, which was by this time acting as the arm of government. And, and that's when they shut us down. It was quite dramatic. We were the number one topic of national conversation in January 2018, three months after publishing our unprecedented New York Times bestseller. They'd never had a multi-authored, specialized knowledge book be a New York Times bestseller. And if the, it was a big publisher that produced us, Macmillan, but they couldn't keep up with the demand. If they had, we would have been number one, but they, it was so unexpected. And within three months, we were able to raise the issue of all the media outlets. In fact, all the major news programs invited me. There isn't one that hadn't invited me, including Fox News. And hmm. within two or three weeks of the APA's intervention, everything stopped permanently. Wow. Do you think the APA then has, you know, in terms of structural violence, in terms of when we think about systemic things that have happened, when we think about January 6th and the violence and the, the terrorism that took place, do you think that the APA has been indirectly responsible because they blocked the public information and the public education that you could have put out there to prevent this? Absolutely. As a public health oriented psychiatrist who has been concerned with prevention and knowing how preventable violence is, almost entirely preventable, very much like the pandemic, with knowledge and pandemic expertise and early intervention, almost all the deaths could have been prevented. A recent Columbia study showed almost up to 97% could have been prevented and other epidemiological studies have shown even up to 99% of the deaths could have been prevented. So violence is very much the same way. In fact, I consider what has happened with the violence proneness, the spread of of, of delusions, of aggressive ideas, has been very much a mental health pandemic that preceded the viral pandemic and worsened both the, the epidemics of the coronavirus as well as the epidemics of violence. That completely makes sense. Completely makes sense. Let's talk to, you know, the therapists who are, who are going to probably watch the show and people with family members and friends who, who are, you know, Trump loyalists. And, and people are worried about violence and people are worried about what is to come. I mean, you know, with all the warnings we've had, what can we do? How do we talk to our friends, our family, our clients about shared psychosis? And what can we do to, to sort of help the situation? Well, as you know, if someone is psychologically already impaired in some way, 
you don't confront their psychological condition. So you wouldn't go right away to talk about shared psychosis, but it's important to keep in mind that this is what's happening and that they're in some ways what they're and the aggressive behavior is almost not entirely the fault, at least. So I would recommend, first of all, not to try to persuade. They're uh, a bit beyond that right now. And But to try to address the conditions that led to their adopting false beliefs in the first place. So uh, some of those conditions would be, I, I describe it in three steps, that we remove the vendation. In other words, the influential fear with severe symptoms. And we did that partially by voting him out, but his influence needs to be curtailed. We know that only external constraints work. He does not limit, there's no limit internally in terms of what he will do. So, so there needs to be limit setting, accountability, prosecution, all those things to discredit him, to release his influence. Uh, secondly, we need to dismantle the disinformation systems that are in place that serve as indoctrination, very much like cultic programming or propaganda, which is prevalent in the right-wing media. For decades, actually, for at least a couple decades, I was concerned that Fox News was presenting disinformation and psychological programming, actually, as news. And I was concerned for our national collective state of mental health since even going back to the late 90s. And I think this is what we're seeing as a natural consequence. And thirdly, I talk about fixing the socioeconomic conditions that gave rise to the psychological vulnerability. We don't think of economic inequality, for example, or other inequalities, racial or gender inequalities, as being directly injurious, but they are psychologically injurious in ways that would make people vulnerable to manipulation, to being attracted to severely wounded individuals. And so, so this can come about through socioeconomic stress, political stress, or developmental injury when there's a lot of individuals who experience stress in their families. So, but I, I digressed a little from your original question is how do we deal with family members, acquaintances, neighbors, fellow country men and women who have these faulty beliefs. First is not to confront them because that will only rouse resistance. And, and secondly, to reach out to them at a more human level, to either go back to memories that the times you shared together before they became indoctrinated. And the more that they feel that they have a place to go to, friendships and a place in the family without adopting beliefs, the more they're likely to get let go because they're emotionally driven beliefs, not logically and rationally convinced persuasion. So if I could maybe speak more as a, as a relational therapist that I am, yes. you're, you're saying to stay away from the, the, the sort of the logical arguments anymore to stay with trying to connect around an emotional level and to help the relationship heal rather than sort of going to arguments and, and all these cognitive things with them. It's, it's about the emotional and relational piece that you're, you're 
you're talking about to repair and to heal first, right? Yes, it's a much more fundamental level. So uh, relationship-wise and also society. Oops, we lost you. Did you get me back? Okay, now you're back. So societally, we need to do that too. Uh, giving people a place of belonging, of acceptance, and that can that happens through justice most of the time. As Cornell West has said, love in a, a social expression of love is justice. Mm -hmm. Something like that. So, mm -hmm. um, how when we look at white supremacy and how this has sort of kind of become interwoven with the Trump loyal kind of psychology. How can we understand this, that, that, you know, there were Confederate flags and Nazi paraphernalia in, you know, the Capitol Hill building. Are you saying that white supremacy and this shared psychosis really became interwoven in some way? And that, and so if that's the case, then what do we do about that? Right. That, that's so complex. It could be complex, but it's also very simple, mm. especially if we have a psychological background, because we recognize these personality structures from the patients we see. It's uncommon to have an authoritarian leader, especially in the United States, but we see these personalities every day in our practice. They compose one to five percent of the population. That's dangerous personalities. And unfortunately, a recent study showed that increasingly corporate leadership is 20% mm. composed of these dangerous personalities. Wow. And wow. so now we're seeing that seeping into the political sphere, mm. even into the presidency. So these personality structures are actually attracted to other structures. That's why Donald Trump, we don't even have to go back to Hitler. We can just go to Vladimir Putin or Recep Erdogan or MBS of Saudi Arabia, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's attracted to these personalities. Kim Jong-un attracted to one another almost magnetically. And so it's no wonder that Donald Trump kept a, a book of Hitler's speeches next to his bedside and, and that his followers would be attracted to Confederacy, which is a more authoritarian culture within the United States, as opposed to Northern culture, which is more egalitarian and Nazi culture. Uh, that's why white supremacists who wish to assert extreme superiority against others to counteract their intolerable inner sense of inferiority and powerlessness. They all have a commonality. Okay. I think, I think one of the big pieces of discourse amongst mental health professionals is, do we consider white supremacy a, a mental illness, a, a mental health issue? And if so, then, you know, this extremist stuff, how do we hold folks accountable if, you know, you know, how, how, how should we be thinking about this or how, how should we frame this for ourselves? Yes, recently the organization I'm a part of, the World Mental Health Coalition, issued a statement encouraging that we consider racism societal mental disorder. So it doesn't make very much sense to think of it as an individual mental illness. It doesn't quite fit, but to see it as a societal disorder makes a lot of sense. And uh, that would be the same with violence. Mental illness does not make 
an individual any more dangerous than someone without mental illness. There's very little about violence that has to do with individual mental illness, but it could be characterized or very much fits being a societal mental illness. Societally, we can predict it much better. It organizes much more predictably and precisely with societal characteristics than with individuals. So we need to think more in collective terms and societal terms, which we have not done enough of in mental health. And it's a great area of need, which we are trying to fulfill now through the World Mental Health Coalition. Oh, I'm very much relieved. I think there's so much about structural and systemic racism that affects communities that I work with on, on, such, a, on such a deep level. And so I'm glad that there's work that's being done around this stuff. You know, back to friends and family, is there any more advice you can give us in terms of, you know, talking to these folks? I know that you're you're saying to connect around an emotional level. How do we address, for example, the, the white supremacy or the um, systemic racism that might be part of this conversation and interwoven with the shared psychosis? Like, it, how, do you have any recommendations for you know your everyday person who's struggling with this right now? I think we have a great advantage as health professionals, as mental health professionals, because we don't really organize our thoughts around ideology in particular. What we do in our general therapy practice is we try to help people to attain their level of, of their fullest level of potential so that they could choose uh, their own ideology and make the healthy choices that they are inclined to in their state of health and flexibility and um, creativity. But I have often stated that fascism is not a political ideology, mm -hmm. but mental pathology in the political sphere. So they would wish to promote it as an ideology, but it almost has nothing to do with ideology. We've also seen fascism occur in uh, right-wing groups as well as left-wing groups. So I would say the same about white supremacy or any kind of superiority versus inferiority ideologies come about because they're fighting uh, a lack of sense of self-worth that comes from a loss of meaning for oneself in society through through the unequal cultures the unjust cultures we create where we divide the population into superior and inferior so that uh, a few are able to feel superior but the rest of the population is scrambling to feel better about themselves. And so uh, that kind, those conditions in society make people gravitate toward ideologies of white supremacy or male superiority or classism, what have you. And so, so what you can do in your personal relationships is to, to find common, uh, common ground. In fact, when I was early on, when I was speaking up about Donald Trump, I was contacted by a lot of uh, Trump supporters who mm -hmm. actually were very open to dialoguing. In, in, in the late stages, they were much less prone to doing so, and they would much more be into pigeonholing me as, as an Asian woman or Chinese uh, virus spreading 
person or an agent of the Chinese Communist Party or as a woman. And, but that was much less common in the beginning. So I would find commonality in terms of our sense of love for country, patriotism, or in my case, I'm actually uh, Christian. So I, I, I have used that to reach out to Trump supporters who are often Christian. And you would be able to open a conversation with them. So finding commonalities. We have a lot more commonalities as human beings than differences, which is why even cross-culturally I've had experiences where even without sharing the language or history or in a vastly different culture, you can find uh, human affection. So that would be where you would take them. And that's what they are missing, in fact. Mm. Uh, and that is why they are, they have gone to the direction that they have. Initially, you may find resistance in violent individuals. You try to reach out to them and they will say that, you know, affectionate talk or what they sometimes call intimating is what sissies do or pussies do. And they are more into violating. But you change those concepts and preconceptions and have them experience what it's like to relate. Many of them yeah. have not been socialized for the first time. And once they do, once they're given some avenue for human dignity, acceptance, then uh, it's amazing how quickly they abandon violence. I can't imagine the, the journey you've taken with this, the leadership you've exhibited for the mental health community in the name of, you know, just, what you need to do for, for the public. I'm very moved and, and so touched by all your work and all the, the yeah. stuff you've done. I'm sorry about all the systemic racism and white supremacy that you've had to deal with from, you know, the institution of psychiatry itself. And um, I'm, I'm so glad that you were at the forefront of dismantling that and really speaking up about that. It I think it's been very hopeful for me. Final question. Do you think that people will recover from this on a, on a wider society, societal scale. Do you think we will heal from this in terms of the shared psychosis and everything that we've gone through? Well, what's hopeful to, hopeful to me <laughs> is that, that the people rose up in spite of these incredibly powerful forces. If you think about mental pathology, how it can even bulldoze over, that's the shared psychosis that just spread like a pandemic. And that explains why there were even a greater number of votes that Donald Trump received in 2020 yeah. in 2016. That part is actually understandable as a natural course of spread of disease once you set up the conditions. But what was intentional and what was an initiative on the part of the people was to rise up against it. And the fact that they voted him out, I think is really speaking to the power of the people and the resistance winning, because it's kind of like an infectious disease in the body where it's a matter of, you know, who wins, whether it's the disease or the body's own immune response, which is also called resistance, depends on perseverance and intention on the part of the, the body, the impulse to restore its health. And I think we could, in fact, pat ourselves on the back a little bit about 
being able to achieve that against all odds. And so I, I am hopeful. I would like to uh, see more of mental health awareness and discussion because that's the only way we're going to prevent and, and stop further spread of this. And so we have a lot of work to do, but we know the path. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bandy. I hope you get some rest after all of this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for listening to the Global Citizenship and Equity Podcast. If you liked this episode, please visit us at www.leadingwithconsciousness.com or subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.